KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. The bold efforts to boost vaccination rates as the Delta variant surges. Individuals' choice not to get vaccinated is now impacting the rest of us. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Are opioid manufacturers being held accountable for a deadly epidemic? You just want to be recognized that this wasn't a failure of parenting or morality or strength, that it really was a failure at a level that we had no control over. The story of San Diegan Aaron Harvey and how his encounter with injustice moved him to fight against it. Plus, a local writer debuts a new book in an upcoming Writers' Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Governor Newsom continues to push vaccinations as coronavirus case rates continue to increase. Individuals' choice not to get vaccinated is now impacting the rest of us and in profound and devastating and deadly way. That choice has led to an increase in case rates, growing concern around increase in death rates, and self-evidently around hospitalization rates, not just here in the state of California that has a 5.3% positivity rate, that's half of Texas, roughly a third of states like Florida, but across the rest of the nation. So starting August 9th, the state will require its employees, health care providers, and employees of jails and homeless shelters to prove they're vaccinated or get tested weekly. The governor is encouraging all employers to do the same. California has yet to reinstate its masking requirement, but is encouraging counties to do so if their case rates are sharply increasing. Joining me now is Paul Sisson, who's been covering this closely with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how many people will this new testing or proof of vaccination requirement impact? Across the state, I guess there are a little over 220,000 state employees. Uh, I I was checking the numbers earlier this morning. Uh, It looks like we have about 10,000 state employees here in San Diego County and about another 150,000 people working in healthcare. So quite a few people. The governor mentioned a 16% increase in vaccinations. Are we seeing an increase in vaccinations locally? Uh, you know, it's trickling up, but I, I, I haven't, uh, I've been watching the numbers and I haven't seen 
anything like a 16% increase uh, in, in the local dashboard that they update, I think, once a week here in San Diego. Uh, so we seem to be uh, relatively plateaued in San Diego at the moment. Mm. Well, local case rates, though, are increasing. Paint the picture for us of what's happening. Gosh, we had quite a shock on Friday uh, with uh, the county health department letting everyone know that they had received uh, more than 1,200 notifications of positive tests on Thursday alone. Uh, you know, and as you know, that was nearly twice to 700 and so that came in on Wednesday. Uh, so it really looks like we've got a bit of a hockey stick curve going on. What we're hearing is that over 80% of those who are testing positive these days are, are unvaccinated or not fully vaccinated. Uh, and so it's really a bit of a, you know, tale of two cities in some ways. You know, you, you've got a much lower rate of, uh, of new infection and in those who are fully vaccinated, but just uh, just going through the roof on the other side of the fence. Earlier today, the governor said vaccination rates and not masking should be the focus. Based on your reporting, what are your thoughts on that? I think that when you're putting out a public health message, uh, you want it to be um, quite simple. You want to have a call to action. And I, I think my sense is that public health, be it at the state level, the the federal level, or the local level, knows that the long-term way out of this is clearly vaccination. And and all you have to do is is look at the difference in case rate among those who are vaccinated and those who aren't. Uh, The governor said statewide today, actually they said in a a pre-press conference briefing that the media had, that they they see a a case rate of about two per 100,000 among those who are fully vaccinated and 14 per 100,000 and those who are not. So I think that rather than calling for statewide masking, once again, I think they want to kind of put all their um, their wood behind this uh, this arrow of vaccination, which they know is kind of the long-term solution. I think it's also um, open to debate whether or not Californians are in the mood at the moment to remask as we were for so many months. Uh, I, I think they probably wonder a little bit about whether that's even possible at this point when you have restaurants and stores and everywhere else pretty much full of uh, unmasked people at this point. You know, I mean, speaking of that, if the trajectory, though, of case rates continues, do you have any sense of when or if mandates could be put back in place here in San Diego County? I think it all comes down to hospitals. We learned uh, during the pandemic, and certainly during the holiday surge that we saw in December and January, uh, that this virus is very capable of filling up our existing hospital capacity. Um, and if that really starts to happen and, and we see this surge really gobble up a significant uh, proportion of our hospital capacity, I think you'll probably see local uh, health officials take some additional action. That, that could very well be uh, toward more masking than we have now. And I think it all comes down to shared healthcare uh, resources and capacity. They, they just cannot allow uh, any virus to come in and uh, make it so that uh, one of your loved ones, if they have a heart attack or something non-COVID related, takes up so much capacity that it, uh, you know, you can't save somebody's life who, uh, who isn't even affected by the virus. I don't think we're anywhere near that that uh, point, uh, I should say. Uh, you know, we have a much smaller denominator now in terms of the um, 
people who might potentially be hospitalized. We have over half of the local population fully vaccinated. It's uh, 1.9 something million people out of 3.3 million in the county. So, so I think the potential to generate massive numbers of uh, hospitalizations is, has got to be much less than it was uh, in the winter of last year. But uh, on the other hand, this Delta variant is more uh, transmissible. So we should see maybe a higher uh, uptick in those who aren't vaccinated than we saw with the wild types uh, out of Wuhan. I've been speaking with the San Diego Union-Tribune's Paul Sisson. Paul, thanks for your insight. Thank you. Just a week after the announcement of a multi-billion dollar settlement with opioid manufacturers, the agreement is showing signs of strain. West Virginia has already said it won't participate in the $26 billion multi-state settlement. The city of Philadelphia says it wants to continue on with its own lawsuit. Both say the amount is too low for the damage caused by opioid manufacturers. California supports the huge settlement, but there is still doubt about whether the companies involved, Johnson & Johnson and three drug distributors, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson, are truly being held accountable for their aggressive marketing of the highly addictive pain pills. Encinitas resident Lisa Nava lost her son Alex to opioid addiction in 2019. She is president of North County Justice Allies and a member of the Addiction Awareness Initiative. Lisa Nava, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, as someone so close to this issue, does this settlement give you any sense that justice has been served? No, not at all. I don't think there's any amount of money or uh, good name redemption uh, for these drug companies that can do the justice to the devastation, not only to personal families, but to our communities. Do you think your son was a victim of the marketing campaigns that those opioid companies pursued? I'm not sure if he was a victim from the marketing campaign. However, I do know that he was overprescribed OxyContin when he broke his knee. And I believe that it was just a primer to using drugs in the future. One of the things I I see is, you know, even with um, getting your wisdom teeth removed at such a young age, they're using OxyContin, sending kids home with it. And it really needs to stop. From your work with the Addiction Awareness Initiative, What else can you tell us about the impact of opioid addiction in our community? People are so confused. Uh, It is so hard to find resources. We say that this is a crisis, and yet the crisis interventions um, are not really working. For my son particularly, you know, they, they talk about relapsing right after rehab. He only went to rehab one time. And, you know, the drugs on the street right now are, are fatal. And um, you can't find enough resources or help to, you know, abate the addiction that's ha- ravaging our communities. Now, much of your work focuses on shifting the stigma of addiction and overdose away from the victims. And I'm wondering, does a huge settlement against the manufacturers help to do that? It certainly is a good way to have national accountability in a way that we use in America to, to have some accountability. So I feel hopeful that settlement will have people accountable and turn people's faces away from the victim always carrying the burden to be stronger, better, faster, (laughs) to overcome this mammoth problem. So yes, accountability is important. And I think it is one step uh, towards ending the stigma. 
What do you think most people in the general public don't know about the way these drugs were uh, marketed, about the way they were prescribed, and what led up to, to so many people becoming addicted to them? I think one thing people don't realize is that, you know, it's your neighbor. It's not just the homeless people on the street. It's your grandma. It's the medicine in your cabinet. And um, it's really a societal problem of our pill culture. The thing that's not talked about in the lawsuit that's really important to me is our drugs on the street today are laced with fentanyl, which is completely fatal. You can't really be a long-term fentanyl user and expect to survive. And so I would like to see some of those uh, programs really targeting fentanyl and stopping the flow of fentanyl into our communities. Now, as part of the settlement, none of the companies involved in this admitted to any wrongdoing. That must be difficult for you and the families touched by the opioid crisis. You know, (laughs) it is very difficult um, because you just want to be recognized that, that this wasn't a failure of parenting or morality or strength, that it really was a failure at a level that we had no control over. And yes, those words that we did something wrong are very important to families. It's hard. When announcing this settlement, California Attorney General Rob Bonta said that this represents one step in the process of healing our communities. Do you agree with that? Yes, it does represent one step. Um, You know, money goes a long way into um, trying to find the resources that our our substance abuse disorder um, folks need, our families need. Uh, but it's a long way from being able to heal anything in the community. How do you think California should use the estimated $2.3 billion it may get from this proposed settlement? Well, I think uh, medically uh, assisted treatment is a critical for opioid addis- um, addiction and substance abuse disorder. It is quite controversial. Um, so I'm hoping that California will find its way into MAT. Um, and really support people that way. Um, I also think that um, harm reduction, such as uh, naloxone and Narcan, needs to be an everyday word. We we use it just was recently added to the CPR standards, so um, that's an opioid reversal drug, and they are teaching people through CPR how to administrate this this drug, and that is really um, where a lot of the money should be going is getting that Narcan into the communities. Where else do you think the effort and resources should be in San Diego to really address the problem of opioid addiction? Well, 100%, we need to do better at treatment options. Um, treatment is extremely expensive. The insurance companies, in my case, didn't want to even pay for 30 days in a, a rehabilitation um, place, and I had to fight for that. So we, we need to make it easier for people to receive treatment. It's a split second when the um, addict is um, able to make a decision that they want help. And in that split second, if you have to wait a week, a month, um, even a day sometimes, that is a matter of life and death. Now, this $26 billion settlement is not a done deal yet. Enough states have to sign on to it for it to go through. And if they don't, these individual state and city lawsuits have to move through the courts, maybe taking many more years. So do you think the lawsuits should end with this agreement? You know, without knowing the, dev- the, the, the financial devastation in a city, I, I, I 
would be reticent in saying that the lawsuits should end. However, I would say that a quick turnaround on these lawsuits is uh, critically important for communities that are being affected by um, opioid addiction and overdose. Um, So I am a proponent in in trying to settle the lawsuits and getting as many states on the lawsuit as possible um, because I think the, the, the communities really need the resources. So in other words, the, the quick settlement of these uh, lawsuits would more quickly bring money to the communities. Yes, more quickly br- bring money to the communities and people like me who have been personally affected and um, have stepped into this fight will be able to see some sort of um, hope at the light, uh, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. I've been speaking with Encinitas resident Lisa Nava, president of North County Justice Allies and a member of the Addiction Awareness Initiative. Lisa, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for this platform. The North County Justice Allies will be holding an event on the 29th of August at Encinitas Community Park to raise awareness for the issue of addiction in our community. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. In the summer of 2014, a swarm of police arrested Aaron Harvey outside Las Vegas. The San Diego native was charged as a test case of a new law that had never been used before. It said someone could be charged with conspiracy for belonging to the same gang as other people who had carried out a series of gang shootings. A judge dismissed the charges against him, but not before he spent seven months in jail. Now Harvey has graduated from UC Berkeley. KPBS reporter Claire Tregesser tells the story of what his last three years have been like. I remember sitting in jail and a Berkeley commercial came on. And I remember telling, uh, his name is DeAndre Cooper. We were cellies. Uh, uh, on the same case. And I was like, if they ever let us out of here, I'm going to Berkeley. And everybody, ah, you know, you sound stupid. <laughs> you know. This is Aaron Harvey in November 2018 during his Thanksgiving break from his first semester at UC Berkeley. I interviewed him in the midst of what would be a huge challenge for him, graduating from one of California's best universities. You know, sometimes I feel like if I don't graduate from this school, I can never come back to San Diego. You know what I mean? Because it's it's just a lot of pressure. You know, like I have to get, I got to be on my midterm and flipped out. You know, <laughs> it's like, one, I've never gotten to be on anything. So I, I was like, 
I was, you know, that was very humbling. Uh, but then at the same time, I'm like, oh, hope this doesn't mess up my, my GPA because I have to have a high GPA because I got to go to Harvard, you know, for law school. And, but I'm putting all this pressure. It's like, chill out. It's a midterm. It's a B. Like, relax. The community in general kind of did place a lot of, I don't know if I want to say expectations, but um, kind of a burden of, of, of being successful on him fairly early on. That's Khaled Alexander, a community leader who's known Harvey for a long time. He says Harvey's case, which so many people saw as unjustly putting him, plus rapper Brandon Duncan, in prison, made the expectations that much higher for a true redemption story. There was a huge amount of community outpouring while they were actually in jail. Um, And so you had the community was a part of this movement to have them released kind of from the very beginning. Once released, instead of the two of them kind of disappearing into obscurity and just kind of working on their own um, or just being thankful enough to have been released, um, instead of that, they ended up, you know, dedicating a large amount of their time to, you know, not only be active in the community, but to be active voices calling for uh, reform of the system or for addressing some of the wrongs that have happened. I, I think it's pretty clear that he would have been Um, Just as happy, if not happier, without all of the attention, being able to go back to school, go to Berkeley, um, get his degree and, 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 and decide to go in whatever direction that he wants to. So that's why I say it's unfair. I think it's unfair anytime a community puts their hopes uh, on any one individual. I think it's an enormous amount of, of, of pressure and responsibility that you didn't necessarily ask for. There was a lot of good things that came out of that case and a lot of people's lives changed for the better and you know we got legislation passed and a lot of good things have come but at the expense of my life though <laughs> at the same time you know so it's like yeah it's great that we got all these things but that kind of like ruined my like life as well you know so it's almost like so it's almost the same thing with like Berkeley now This was over Thanksgiving break, and Harvey said in some ways it was difficult for him to be around his old neighborhood because he felt everyone he saw was putting pressure on him. But now they're like, oh, so when when are you going to start law school? And I'm like, I'm only halfway done with my first year. You guys are already talking to me about law school? Like, this is, okay, now I got to, you know, get to law school. Um... I don't think I've ever really said this before, but like I, I, of course, I care about social justice, and you know, I've pretty much dedicated my whole life to it, right? Um, but you know, people ask me like, "Well, what do you want to do?" and study law, and but to be honest, like, yeah. Like, yeah, of course, I'm gonna study law, but really, like, I'm doing all of this. Like, it, there's a, there was a guy on our case. Uh, his name is Justin Anderson. He's doing life on our case. And he's like, I was like, my, he's like my brother. 
you know. We grew up six houses down the street from each other. And like, I'm becoming an attorney to get him out of jail. Like, I'm not, like, things, people, people will benefit from the things that I'm doing and, but those are like, like those are like the side effects <laughs> of it. Um, my goal is to get him out of like we don't have the money to get him out of jail. Like I'm going to get him out of jail, and then after I do that, I might not want to study law anymore. I talked to Harvey again during his winter break, and I could tell his college experience was taking a huge mental toll. He showed up looking tired, looking thin, and you could hear the exhaustion in his voice. Four or five weeks ago, I'm ready to drop out, right? Um, so it's, it's, it was tough. Um, I got through it. But again, I think, I don't feel like it was tough necessarily, uh, like academically in the sense that I didn't understand the information but there's a language that you have to decode. There's a, there's like a, you have to like demystify a lot of things up there that I wasn't necessarily aware of going up there. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, go to class, read, study, turn in your paper. Um, but like building relationships with professors, building relationships with the grad students who actually grade your papers, the, professors don't even <laughs> yeah I'm like nobody told me this like why am I still going talking to this professor and he knows nothing about my work that I'm turning in um I just need him for a letter of recommendation like oh okay like, this is how all of this works and it sounds so simple but it's very complex for a person who doesn't know and then just the the nervousness of like, in a sense, right, like, going to jail is easy. I could physically do that. But going, you asked me to go talk to a professor during office hours, and I'm about to have a panic attack. He kind of became a representative of the community in general. And so, as such, you know, and unfairly, um, you know, his success was tied up in, in what people, I think, felt was their own success. And similarly, his failure, I think, was connected and tied up in what, you know, the larger community would see as their own, as their own failure. Again, call it Alexander. He also, uh, as an individual, I think, can represent kind of what it's like to be Black in this country, what it's like to be an African-American in this country. Um, where you do have to work harder. If you do mess up, there's going to be more attention. Harvey remembers people who've left his neighborhood in southeast San Diego before. They went to college or law school, and when they came back, they talked differently and dressed differently. He resolved to not do that, but it's challenging. I call it like cold switching, I guess, or whatnot. Um, so when people like still feel like, okay, he's still the same person, he... He's just doing other things. It, it kind of like motivates them. They're like, okay, well, I can still do this too. I, I've had professors tell me, um, you know, okay, we need to use more academic language. And and I challenged her, well, like, who set the standard for what's academic language, right? You know, um, 
Like, so you want me to speak white? I told I, I told her one of her articles, I said, you know, I felt like you wasted my time. This article was trash, right? <laughs> and she said, well, why was it trash? Um, and then I critiqued it, which isn't that why we're in these academic settings is to, you know, analyze and critique. So she says, well, I'm going to need you to have a more critical analysis on this article, uh, on these articles when we we're discussing in class. And I said, oh, what do you mean? Like, you just don't like the way I'm talking about it? Yes, I need you to speak more academically, right? Um, and I told her no. And then what does that even mean? Define that, right? Um, who set the standard for what is, you know, the correct way of speaking? Did you understand what I said? Yes, okay, well then... That's, that's how we're going to communicate. <laughs> I talked to Harvey again at the end of his first year, and he was much more confident in his abilities at Berkeley and was already thinking about what he'd do when he graduated. I want to I wanna go, go to Ivy League school. I want to just shoot for a moon. Also, Harvard's, Yale's, Columbia's, NYU's. Um, if I stay in California, um, of course, I'll apply to Berkeley, um, like Stanford, Davis, UCLA. I'd like to stay in California, but definitely, like, honestly, I'll go wherever, whoever accept me. But I'm going to apply to probably like the top 10, 15 law schools. But he was also still thinking about his mental health because Harvey was arrested suddenly in a police raid and spent time in prison for gang crimes he had nothing to do with, he has traumatic memories. Yeah, I'm super paranoid, too, as well. I'm always, who is that? Like, why is that person looking over here? You know, like, I'm always thinking that uh, somebody's police or somebody, you know, taking pictures or just, I don't know, like I'm always just like super, you know, crowded and then like crowded, loud spaces. Um, that's that's like the perfect recipe for like a panic attack, you know, um, or even when you're having these like episodes of like panic attacks and anxiety attacks, uh, certain kind of like brain tricks to kind of... Uh, you know, so they won't really either last as long or be as intense kind of things. I think that was more like my second semester. It's, it's, it's really, I almost feel like I I, uh, I put myself in a position for these kind of episodes to happen because of what I'm choosing to study, right? Um, and then I'm at Berkeley where it's just home of everything political. So like staying off social media, right, and not really reading these crazy stories or leaving the news alone. Um, like don't don't torture yourself more than what you're being assigned is automatically doing anyway. Two years and one pandemic later. Harvey graduated with a degree in political science. So what's up? Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I talked to him again, this time at an outdoor park with ducks around us instead of a studio. Also, his plans have changed. I think I figured out law school wasn't for me like my first year at Cal. Because the more and more I started 
digging into the law, working with uh, attorneys, dealing with cases and things like that, they're still finding ways to just incarcerate people. So it's like, I'm not saying that was wasted energy. I don't feel that way, but that's not good enough. Like that's not, that wasn't good enough. Um, there's laws get created for us, laws get created against us, and they're still doing, you know what I mean? I feel like, this isn't it. and then being an attorney, it boxes you in. Like, you know, I'm dealing with the law, and if the laws are immoral, then it doesn't matter. Now he wants to work in real estate and do development jobs that would hire people with felony records. What can I provide poor people to kind of minimize the risk they're willing to take that's going to put them in prison? I think that's where I'm at. Yeah, I'm going to disappoint a lot of people, but... <laughs> what I was going to ask is, do you have this pressure to, you know, it's like, oh, you did this, now what's next? What are you going to do? Yeah, no. Because people are like, yeah, so what's next, what's next, what's next? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe I just want to go to sleep. <laughs> it's been a lot. It's been a long seven years. Like, and I'm, I'm, I am exhausted. I'm tired, but I'm like excited too because now I feel like I can do what I want to do, and I'm not like beholden to a, a, a school schedule. Um, but I don't know. I feel like I could just be way more impactful outside of the law. And I think that's where I'm going. So, like, the pressure is there, but I don't let it dictate or consume me. I did in the beginning when I was first starting to do all of this, but I think I'm in a position now, and I'm older, right, to where it's almost like uh, I've given it my all, and, and like, okay. Like, what more do you want from me? And like, who, and then who are, like, where are the pressures coming from? Like, who are these people? You know what I mean? Like, if someone very close and dear to you has an opinion, it means a lot more than just kind of like somebody far on the outside. But he's not really just lying around. He's working with a nonprofit, helping people who've been to prison write college essays and do their applications. We have 100% acceptance rate into the UCs. I think my acceptance rate into Berkeley is like 87% right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm like telling people, like if you go through my program, I guarantee you, you'll get into a UC. I played for him a few of his old clips about applying to only Ivy League law schools, about having a panic attack over the B on his midterm, and he laughed. So one, I was like, wow, I don't think I was here <laughs> <Do you remember laughs> that. Yes. Um, I feel none of that anymore. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I just, well, one, therapy, right? <sighs> Man, a whole lot of that, right? Um, and just like, bro, you're you're human. You know what I mean? Just you're you're human, and you're trying, and it's either gonna happen or it's not. Oftentimes, we hold have expectations for this one individual to make us feel better about an entire system. 
um, and, you know, thousands and thousands of people who are in the same situation. Again, call it Alexander. And while we should definitely celebrate Aaron's success and um, certainly be proud of all of the accomplishments that he should make, that certainly shouldn't happen at the expense of us recognizing that um, people like Aaron are kind of the exceptions who were able to um, be successful in spite of the system and not because of the system. Um, and all of the people who you know are continuing to fight cases today or who have already lost their case and then doing serious amount of time um, on gang enhancements, um, I think is, is, is big. Now, Harvey does seem lighter, less exhausted, less weighed down, and with some of the ease and carefreeness you'd expect a brand new college graduate to have. He has a young daughter and plans to move out of San Diego for a time, but says he'll eventually be back to buy a house and raise his family here. Like my moods are changing. I'm just starting to feel a lot lighter on my feet, more energy. And now that is really giving me the clarity on how or what I'm gonna do. So I think, I, I, well not I think, I know. And again, I was, again, it was guilt and everything else. I was trying to take care of everything else and I wasn't taking care of myself. And now I'm like, now nah, I gotta take care of myself. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. San Diego author and professor Chris Barron has a new book out, a middle grade novel written in verse called The Magical Imperfect. The story takes place in the Bay Area against the backdrop of the 1989 World Series and the massive earthquake. We follow the friendship of Eitan and Malia, two outsiders, and the family, community, and world around them. The Magical Imperfect is Barron's second middle-grade novel in verse after his noteworthy debut, All of Me. He'll be honored at the San Diego Writers' Festival on Saturday with the 2021 San Diego Festival Award. Chris Barron recently spoke to KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans, and here's that interview. Let's start with the format of this book, a novel in verse. The plot unfolds similarly to a prose novel, but there's this ramped up magic and beauty to each page here. Can you talk a little bit about what else poetry 
brings to the narrative and and why you made this style choice. I I feel like sometimes verse is my native language. I've always loved writing poetry, but you're absolutely right. All the elements of storytelling, plot, character, setting, conflict, they're all there. But I think verse brings even another dimension to it. And there's kind of an intimacy with the reader that happens in a verse novel. Um, And there's space on the page for the reader to breathe and to imagine and participate in the novel a little bit more, which I found to be a really cool effect of verse novels. I also think verse can explore like the internal landscape of a character a bit more, especially for middle grade readers. They have so much going on inside. You know, if you ask them how their day went, they might just say good. But we know there's just uh, so much happening inside that they want to share. And I think verse allows for that more internal landscape, that intimacy with their thoughts and emotions to come out. I want to talk about your characters. Uh, Itan struggles with a form of selective mutism since his mother had to be hospitalized. And then there's Malia. Like Itan, she's an outcast. If, If you could, could you tell us a little bit about these characters and... And what it is that Malia and Itan can find in each other. Yeah, I, I think I've always, I mean, personally loved stories of the outcasts who kind of find each other and realize that they're not really outcasts, that they're completely valuable and important as anyone else. And for Itan, you know, a thing happened to him. His mother left suddenly because of she had to deal with her, you know, her medical situation. And he just stopped talking in the book. He talks about, he thinks maybe his words went with her. And he doesn't really know why, but because of it, because he can't talk the way maybe he wants to, he can't participate in things. I think the kids treat him a bit like an outcast. And for Malia, you know, she's dealing with very severe eczema, so bad that she's teased and bullied and has to be homeschooled because the kids at school call her the creature, even though she's this vibrant, dynamic character. And they really bring out the best in each other when they finally do get a chance to meet. Place and history is really important in this story, particularly this very, very famous backdrop of of the earthquake. And there's a point in time as we approach that notorious World Series that you start titling these poems, almost like miniature chapters, with a specific timestamp. And I was on the edge of my seat. When you're writing about historical events in, in real places, what drives you? And, and is this wrapped up in your own experience with this game? I think that, you know, I've, this is my second book about the Bay Area. So clearly my time living there really had an impact on me and that setting. But I absolutely loved writing those parts of the book and imagining these earthquakes and, you know, the impact that earthquakes have on young people, um, because something so solid as the earth suddenly isn't anymore. And it's such a powerful sort of metaphor for kids growing up as the world shakes and changes. And and also because it's historical, I had so much fun, not, you know, thinking of the horrible earthquake, but just doing the research. There's so much live action footage of it happening because it took place during the World Series. And so just imagining those, you know, how the chapters would run and the moments leading up to it, it really wrote itself in the sense that it had to be broken down into those bits what was happening in the world, what was happening for the characters, um, what was happening in the environment directly around them, and how everything broke apart and comes back together slowly was such a great way to sort of write a story. 
There's a scene in the book where Itan's father, the son of a refugee, he tries to help Itan understand what it might mean for the Giants to come back from two losses. This is before game three by talking about resilience. And he's talking about what his grandfather and other immigrants went through. Also what Malia goes through with her skin condition. Can you tell us a little bit about this immigrant story and the way you use these metaphors throughout the book? That's a really important part of the story. And the theme of that particular chapter is this idea of what are we made of? And as you know, clay is a big part of the story. There's a kind of a magic clay in the story. And, you know, this idea of being made of something tough. So that's kind of the banter they have back and forth to discuss this topic, because the people who founded this town came on a boat and immigrated through Angel Island and went through such an incredible um, and powerful process of just immigrating. Lots of people know about going through Ellis Island, but many people came from 1910 to 1940 through Angel Island. And this story really imagines, you know, this group of people that came through and now we read about their their ancestors who now are part of this story. And they they imagine what they're going through, Aton and his father, how hard life seems to be, but they are relating to and, and um, connecting with what the grandparents had to do what his parents had to do as they came across a ship into a whole new life and to, to make a whole new life together. So it really is about resilience and, and what it takes to, uh, to make it. And there's, there's also a lot of ritual. There's Jewish tradition. There's these hints at ancestral magic, like that clay throughout the story, as well as nature. And we follow Eitan as he navigates, not only hearing stories about these things, but understanding and even harnessing them. What does all of that mean to you? I think that, you know, so much of the story is intergenerational. It brings kind of the idea of the old world and the new world clashing together. And what happens when, you know, older rituals are brought into kind of a newer life? Um, Because I think it's so important. I don't know, for me and my family, but for young readers, you know, to understand how important the sacred can be. And, but a lot of times it's confusing, like all around us, there's things being demanded and people going through situations and concepts of ritual. But here's this kid, Aton, in the middle of it all, wanting to honor everything, but seeing all the clashes. So I wanted the book and the story to explore the beauty of these rituals and the challenges that come with them and the way that they, you know, like I said, the old world clashing with the new world and the new way of things, but also how they hold everything together. On Saturday, you will be honored by the San Diego Writers Festival with the 2021 San Diego Festival Award. First, if you could tell us a tiny bit real quick about the festival and also what is special about receiving that award. Yeah, I mean, the San Diego Writers Festival, it, it's incredible um, what they're, they're pulling together, even in years where it has to be virtual. I'm just really proud that, you know, our city here is having such a vibrant writing community and that the festival is really one of the, you know, one of the leaders in this and a huge part of the community. And it's a super honor to be included in that among so many other talented artists and writers. Um, So I'm really humbled by this and I'm thankful to be a part of the the San Diego community as a writer and, you know, as an educator and just as a citizen. 
That was San Diego author and professor Chris Barron speaking to KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans about his new book, The Magical Imperfect. Barron will be honored at the San Diego Writers Festival this Saturday with the 2021 San Diego Festival Award. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.